0: Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have an amazing episode to share with you. This one was truly fascinating. Uh, I just had a conversation with a nuclear scientist. His name is Michael Short. He's a professor at MIT and we talk about everything nuclear. Uh, You may have heard on one of my recent episodes, episode 50 with Scott Adams, we talked about generation four nuclear and how promising it's it's looking for a future energy source. And uh, that amongst other things has piqued my interest in learning more about nuclear. And I had the opportunity to ask Mike every question I had and uh, he delivered. There's so much going on out there in this industry and There's so many reasons to get involved with this industry. Uh, We talk about all those things and more. Uh, The only ask that I have is that you check out Michael's course online. There's a couple of courses that we discuss in this conversation that are available for free to the general public on the internet, uh, which is my favorite thing in the world, uh, that I recommend you check out if this uh, piques your curiosity whatsoever. So please, Please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Michael Short. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you on the show.
1: Yeah, likewise. Glad to be here. Hey,
0: so for the audience out there who are not familiar with you already, could you share a little bit about your background and, and your bio, like what you're up to right now?
1: Yeah, so my name is Mike Short. I'm associate professor at MIT in the nuclear science and engineering department, but I do nuclear materials. That's basically material science wherever radiation is involved. I'm a Boston native. I've lived here all my life except three months in Japan. And otherwise, I've been within 20 miles of MIT my whole life. Didn't plan on going here when I was a kid because I didn't think I was smart enough. And I found out that everyone that came here didn't think they were smart enough. And that's pretty common. Uh, Called imposter syndromes. No one thinks they're smart enough to be here. And most of us were wrong. We, we were.
0: That, that's but funny. anyone thinking,
1: oh, I, you know, I could never go to MIT, I think twice. and talk to some people here and say, you know, you might be able to, it's, it's worth a shot.
0: Well, well, being a Boston native myself, I had the exact same, uh, the exact same thought process, uh, when mm-hmm. it came to MIT. So I appreciate that sentiment. Maybe I will rethink, um, <laughs> get going there. So when did you, were you always interested in nuclear science or, or is that something that sort of caught you by surprise?
1: It caught me by surprise pretty early on. I'd say I was, uh, I came in thinking I wanted to be uh, somewhat related to biology, quickly realized that memorizing stuff is not my thing, thought I'd go electrical engineering, but then thought, you know, what is the problem at the root of all the other problems? And to me it was energy. And so I thought, how can I make a big impact in energy? And there were lots of ways to make clean impact in energy, but the only one that was big at the time was nuclear power because U S at least had kind of maxed out its hydropower solar and wind were still taking off and I saw nuclear as a big way to make an impact on the climate.
0: And and when was that when you were making that decision about?
1: Around freshman year, I had a a couple of neat experiences, two professors in this department. One was my TA in chemistry for freshmen and one was my TA in thermodynamics. And they both, one of them said, well, come work in my lab, see what it's like. And I loved it. The second one gave them hard problems for us to do on the exam. Uh, let's just say I did well, despite being a freshman. And he said, "You are coming with me to talk to the rest of us." And between the two of them recruiting, it worked.
0: And and about what year was that that that, that took place?
1: That was 2001, my freshman year.
0: Got it. So I'm curious because obviously technology around us has grown and developed and really exploded in so many ways since 2001. What what has changed in the nuclear field since then?
1: Um, Not as much has changed in the nuclear field as I'd like until a few years ago. So I'd say things remained relatively static from like 2001 to 2010 or so, at least from my point of view as a student. Uh, It might also have to do with I graduated in 2010 with a PhD and started to become aware of a lot more of what was going on around me. There were nuclear startups, there were smaller reactors, people started talking about more customer-centric things like you think in any industry. At the end of the day, you got to sell something to a customer. And the word customer was never uttered in my undergrad education. It was all build the biggest power plant, make it as efficient as possible. No mention of a minimum viable product in terms of engineering specs. No such thing as minimum viable product when it comes to safety. It's like you can't be safe enough. You always got to get better. Um, But a lot of exciting things started to happen. Like nowadays, fusion power, instead of being 50 years away, is projected to be 15 years away. And that means I'll see it in my lifetime. Like when I was an undergrad, I was told I won't see it in my lifetime. Now I'm 36 and I'm told I will. So it's something I'm getting involved with. In. Wow. What,
0: what are some of the developments that led to that acceleration for, for fusion power?
1: In the case of fusion, it comes down to how dense can you make the plasma, mm-hmm. the, the stuff in the middle of the reactor that produces all the energy. And a kind of right field invention in the form of high temperature superconductors meant that you could apply a bigger magnetic field to squish the plasma more. And if you double the strength of that field, it scales with that fourth power. So that's like 16 times as much confinement, which means 16 times better. Or if you think of it from a minimum viable product view, you could build the same reactor, but 16 times smaller. And that's really where it's at. The whole fusion community has been thinking of this gigantic machine called ITER in Catarache in France. It's like, The biggest thing I could conceptualize, it's not necessarily what a customer, a utility would want to buy. And so there's a new startup that nucleated at MIT that's saying, well, why don't we do take these giant magnets from over here and slap them on our existing fusion reactor over there? And we can do what Eater can do, but way, 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 way smaller. And then it's something that a company could buy instead of a government. And all of a sudden, you've changed the game. And so that's what they're all up to.
0: And so when you make that distinction between a company and a government, is is there a particular reason why it it makes more sense to target a utility or, or a customer like that rather than the government? Why is the government not as interested in nuclear?
1: Sure. So I won't say the government's not interested in nuclear, but I'll say it's more complicated because there's more stakeholders involved, like every single American right? Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of political muscle and a lot of money to do things on a governmental level. A company is interested in their bottom line and their mission. And if things are small enough that a company can buy them, they can happen quicker. And you can iterate quicker. You can fail quicker without affecting as many people like diverting tax dollars from something else. And you get your answer faster. Then if everything works out... To scale it up, it may require some government help or a public-private partnership. But starting private, I've come to realize the value of that in in a number of ways.
0: Now, I, I think where a lot of people's mind would go when it comes to that, uh, you know, like a private company taking on nuclear, is they're worried about the safety involved with nuclear. And you know, there's mm-hmm. a there's always been this idea of sort of not in my backyard when it comes to a nuclear power plant. Yeah. Uh, What are some of the, I mean, I'm sure you're very aware of the, you know, the public image of nuclear. How do you think a a private company or private utility could implement a nuclear solution and get around those kinds of uh, safety concerns?
1: Ah, so there is no getting around safety concerns, at least in this country and most other countries which copied our regulations. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission licenses power plants. You cannot build one and turn one on on public land unless you get this regulation agency's approval. And that's a good thing, is there? there is no way to sidestep these safety requirements, nor should there be. It's possible that they could be too strict, like nothing we do is ever 100% safe. That, that I can say with absolute certainty, nothing's 100% safe. Doing nothing is not 100% safe. Um, the question is, is the risk worth the reward? So when people say not in my backyard, I wouldn't want to live near a nuclear power plant, I would come back and say, I'd way rather live near a nuclear power plant than a coal power plant. So if you take it for granted, I'm going to live near a big power plant, it's a lot safer to live near a nuclear one. It doesn't produce the ash and the CO2. That's now the biggest killer of humans. It's eclipsed smoking, uh, is wow. now atmospheric pollution and CO2. I i don't think I've ever been alive and I just heard that happen, I think this year or last year, something like that. Uh, that That might be partly because smoking rates could be going down, but it's atmospheric pollution and CO2 is killing the most people. Nuclear plants don't produce. Sorry, I was going to say either way,
0: that's very alarming.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the crazy thing is nuclear plants produce less radioactive waste. Coal plants, when you take carbon and stuff from the ground and you burn off the carbon, you're left with the other stuff and that's got low levels of radiation in the ash. So you actually get something like 11 times more radiation living near a coal plant than living near a nuclear plant. Wow. What's important to note though, is that the actual numbers for both of those are so small. They do not have any statistical effect to cause any ill effect. This is actually something I was going over in class today. Um, Most people are afraid of really low levels of radiation because it's radiation. The fact is we don't know if tiny, tiny levels of radiation cause any damage And we will likely never know, according to the International Committee on Radiation Protection, because the amount of people we'd have to deterministically expose to those low levels of radiation, we're talking like 60 million people in a controlled experiment for the low levels that people are worried about. And if you expose 60 million people to radiation of any amount, that's like a crime against humanity. It's not something I'm willing to do to get that data. So they actually recommend, we have to come to terms with the uncertainty of very, very, very low risk things. And this is one of them.
0: So I I think some people, their natural, their concern is when something goes wrong with nuclear that the radiation becomes a much higher exposure. Is that accurate or, or truthful?
1: It depends. So in the case of Chernobyl, big time. That was a cascade of failures from operator error to management issues to not building a containment dome which is why when the reactor caught fire, it spread stuff as far away as Sweden. And that's when they sounded the alarm is when other countries said, where's this radiation coming from? So if not properly managed, yeah, nuclear accidents can be really, really big. Luckily, we've had one of those so far, Chernobyl. Fukushima, which is the more recent one that everyone's got in mind, is quite different. It was a hydrogen explosion, not a nuclear explosion it did disperse a lot of radioactive contaminants into places like the ocean. Luckily for us, the ocean is very big. I was just talking to someone in Japan how they actually measure the radiation levels of fish for, uh, farmed or uh, caught in the Fukushima area. Not once has there been an incidence of detectable radiation contamination, but they measure everyone just in case. I think there is never harm in getting data to make sure that to prove that things are safe. But so far the evidence shows there aren't cases of contamination unless you were to go fishing, like right outside the reactor. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend that. Um, luckily the ocean's very big. So we actually do this calculation in our class, the amount of radiation released by Fukushima compared to the size of the ocean. It raised radiation levels by about one part in a thousand to one part in 10,000 because the potassium wow. naturally present in the oceans is radioactive. That's just what we've evolved in naturally. So the expression, a drop in the ocean is very appropriate here.
0: Got it. Okay. That's very interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, now to be I'm, fair, like, yeah,
1: the, the actual amount of radiation released in Fukushima was a lot. If that were concentrated in one space, that would be really bad news, but it wasn't.
0: Got it. Got it. Now, one of the other areas that, you know, just sort of running through the list of common, you know, thoughts about nuclear uh, is, or this one's more of like the absence of nuclear when it comes to global warming and everyone's concerned with carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, I learned back in environmental science in high school that nuclear was the cleanest form of energy uh, for the number of kilowatt hours that it produced. Do you have any uh, insight, you know, with all your time in in this industry as to why it's not more talked about or more uh, openly uh, accepted that nuclear should be a part of our energy equation?
1: I think so. So it had to do a lot with pop culture in the 1970s. And uh, for example, unfortunately, uh, the movie, The China Syndrome came out. And then very shortly after that, the Three Mile Island didn't happen. So talk about a, a perfect storm, a one-two punch to ruin the image of nuclear in the U.S. Um, first, this hypothetical thing that, oh, a, a core could go nuts and burn its way down to China, which is... A little silly came out and then there was a real nuclear incident and people are like oh boy here we go uh so it's it's definitely i mean unfortunately there are people who speak from a position of authority whether they're professors or celebrities that don't have all the information or have misinformation and it's easy to believe people in figures of authority this this can be something kind of damaging like to me i liken this to the anti-vaxxer movement nowadays Um, I can't think of anything more harmful than foregoing vaccines, which were developed to stop things like the spread of measles. And it blows me away that we're having measles outbreaks in 2019. And a lot of this is because um, anti-vax folks have gotten, in some cases, 10 or 20% of the children are unvaccinated and you don't need a 100% unvaccinated rate to start an epidemic. So the fact that these diseases would come back blows my mind. And the same thing goes for nuclear power. Um, There have been some studies in both the anti-vax world and the nuclear power world that were wrong. There's the the famous study that linked vaccines to autism, which was based on fraudulent evidence. And people ignore the thousands of studies that contradict it. Same thing goes for, let's say, the effects of low-level radiation. There are some studies that say, I exposed this many mice to that much radiation and they got more cancer. And then there are some studies that say I I was just talking about this today in class. I exposed this many mice to to radiation, or I monitor this many people that worked in the mines or were exposed to radon. And there was a statistical decrease in cancer rates with increasing radiation up into a point. And then after that point, which was a pretty decent dose, then it started to increase. Um, Real points are more subtle than are capable to be given in sound bites.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, I would take it a step further and liken the, uh, you know, public attitude towards nuclear towards uh, compared to, you know, like the flat earth movement. Like more people probably believe in a flat earth in 2019 than did 50 years ago. You know what I mean? It's, it's all oh, too information perpetrating,
1: spreading around. I sure hope not. I mean, my, my hope that this... <laughs> Flat Earth or idiot is just a bunch of trolls being like, I bet I can just keep this raging and it'll be hilarious.
0: I think both uh, are true. I think I think it's originally a trolled thing and you just, enough, you know, people are lacking the data and they hear about a Flat Earth movement and that people actually believe in it and are convinced that, you know, it could be true just for that reason alone.
1: Yeah. So uh, something else that you had mentioned about nuclear being, being the cleanest energy source, um, something that's counterintuitive is despite the accidents. It's also statistically the safest. <clears throat> and this could be something that's hard for people to come to terms with because when there's a nuclear accident, it's big and it affects a lot of people, it's all in the news. Um, but if you have to quantify what a safe mean, you could quantify it in, let's say, years of uh, high quality life lost or, for example, deaths caused per energy produced. It's like, take all the energy that's ever been produced from solar, from coal, from gas, from nuclear, whatever, and divide it by the number of deaths directly attributable to that source. And nuclear comes out as the safest, right around where wind and solar are. And so if your goal is to make the safest energy mix, there's your answer. It's nuclear, wind, and solar. The, uh, yeah. In wind, it comes from maintenance of the turbines. and solar, it comes from people falling off of roofs. In nuclear, the only couple of folks that we know died from Fukushima, one of them fell off a crane when he was dealing with the accident. Um, Most of the deaths from the Fukushima incident came from the stress of the evacuation, mostly elderly people that lived in the area. Uh, Whether you count that as part of the deaths, I actually don't know. And I imagine there are studies that count it one way or the other. Even so, um, it's funny, I hear people say, oh, well, you know, solar, why not just do solar and wind there, you know, nuclear, it takes carbon to make a nuclear plant. I said, yeah, same thing with solar panels. So the biggest fallacy to me of our time is that there are fans of solar or fans of wind or fans of nuclear and of only that energy source. You know, anyone who's arguing for 100% of something missing the big picture, that includes 100% folks, just not a good idea. They should be working together.
0: Yeah, even even myself, I, I'm deeply involved in the solar industry and have been for almost five years. I own a solar company out here in California now, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, but I embrace nuclear as you know a a very stable, reliable form of energy that we need as part of our uh, sort of energy portfolio. You know, to be completely sure. dependent on any one source is just bad planning.
1: That's dangerous. I mean, you you open yourself up to grid disruptions to negative electricity prices like no one's going to sell electricity when it costs you to shove it on the grid. Yeah. Uh, you open yourself up to terrorism. If you've got low energy diversity, that's makes you vulnerable, uh, both from intentional attack and from common mode failures that where no one's attacking.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, uh, to, you know, move more towards where we're at today with nuclear. What ca- <clears throat> you mentioned that the technology mostly, uh, was you know, stagnant for you know, maybe your first 10 years in the industry. Things mm-hmm. started to change, the, the development of fusion seemed more realistic. What other uh, developments have occurred in let's say the past decade that have been, you know, that have sort of changed the, the future for nuclear?
1: I think the key word is small. So I remember from when I was a student, The big new nuclear thing was the AP-1000 reactor, this ultra crazy safe reactor that was on the scale of a gigawatt electric that was going to be the next big reactor. And in the end, not a lot of people bought it simply because it's enormous. I mean, the bills for these are pushing past $10 billion. It's awfully difficult to secure a loan for $10 billion when these plants have a habit of going over budget and over schedule because... Mm -hmm regulations pop up that you've got to deal with. You've got to appease the public and and convince them that it's going to be safe. And you you know, this is not a centrally planned country. We can't just declare that it's safe and go do it. You have to get people on your side with facts. And that takes time. And that takes empathy. And that takes more time. Um, So by going small, thinking maybe we don't need a gigantic reactor that few people will buy maybe some isolated community or a data center which needs about 100 megawatts could use a little reactor. And when you go small, you get a lot safer as well, just for the simple reason that you don't tend to be as power dense and your surface area to volume ratio increases. It's a little easier to get heat out, just all other things not considered. Um, So it's an easier sell. Like if you just need half a billion dollars to build a 100 megawatt plant, but you'd need $10 billion to build the gigawatt plan. It's easier to get your foot in the door when there's a couple zeros missing from the bill. That's exciting that things seem to be more customer focused.
0: Have any of these smaller scale nuclear options been deployed as of yet?
1: Almost. So there's a company called new scale, which is submitting or submitted. I forget their actual license to the NRC. And then once that's clear, they should be able to start building. And they're on the order of an order of magnitude, 10 times smaller than a typical reactor right now. And otherwise it's, it's a light water reactor. It's relatively similar technology. It's really good design to get everything compact, but you just might get one built in a few years instead of a couple decades.
0: I see. Um, Well, one thing that I'm seeing a lot of on the internet, specifically on Twitter is, is a lot of people talking about generation four nuclear there's some, been some updates or iterations to nuclear technology. Are you familiar with what, what some of those could be and why those sort of change the game for, for nuclear on, on a small scale and just being
1: better for people? Sure. I actually did my PhD on one of them, on the liquid lead reactor. So there's oh, a cool. few reactors that deviate heavily from the kind we have now, which are cooled with light water, as in water with regular hydrogen, not deuterium or anything like that. These are reactors cooled with things like molten salt, liquid lead, liquid sodium, very high temperature gas like helium, um, to name some examples. And there are actually companies out there to commercialize this. Like there's a company called Kairos Power out in Alameda that's looking to build a molten salt cooled reactor along with TerraPower up in Washington state. And so nowadays with these Generation 4 reactors, they, they can't fail by certain ways like Fukushima did. For example, without water in the core, you can't get so hot that you cause the water to make steam and to react with the zirconium in the reactor if you don't have any water or zirconium. Just by switching materials, because you have to, you eliminate some possible failure modes while not introducing too many new ones. So there's a lot of inherent safety ideas with this. And with some of these coolants, you can make the reactor more power dense and therefore more bang for your buck in terms of your bill up front versus what you get out of it, and your payback period to get shorter. Now, we haven't built those commercially in our country. So the first person to get it going is going to break a major barrier here. And I'm thrilled that it's startups doing it. Because mm-hmm. like I said, they're agile. They can pivot missions. They can respond to market needs instead of sticking with an old government mission. They'll need the government's help. But ultimately, they're in control of what they decide to do.
0: And what's interesting to me coming from, you know, an entrepreneurial background myself is to get into a startup of nuclear just seems so, seems very hard to approach. It seems like you'd need a lot of uh, access to materials that everyday people don't have access to. Like, you know, like how would I get my hands on uranium or whatever needs to be used to create the energy? Like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, you can't just go out and buy a bunch of enriched uranium. Let's let's just say you'd get put on a list. <laughs> you probably wouldn't get it. Um, there, there are different hoops that these companies have to jump through in order to... Any uh, Anytime you start making a nuclear technology, you're subject to what's called export control. You have to make sure that not only the materials you deal with, but your designs and your simulations couldn't be leaked or released to a foreign entity because it is against the law to aid a foreign nuclear power, I guess, except in very certain specific agreements and specific ways. It's generally, you can't do it. And there have been cases prosecuted like, where there was a uh, guy inside the Tennessee Valley Authority who was passing documents to a Chinese nuclear company um, illegally. And, but he lied. I mean, it, it was on this guy who did it. And he's either still in jail or went to jail and is out. I don't remember how much time has passed. Uh, But that's what could happen. Um, So you can't just, you know, design something and go make it. You also have to ensure and prove that you can't accidentally or intentionally export it outside the country. So who you hire might be more stringent. Uh, How you deal with your materials might be more stringent. As far as where one buys uranium and what you do with it, not the right person to ask on that. Um, Never done it. So I can't really tell you.
0: Got it. Got it. Well, it's, yeah, it's definitely cool that startups are doing it, uh, as well, just because, you know, they can actually disrupt the industry as opposed to, uh, you know, if it's just the same old, you know, industry that is currently behind large oil and gas and different fossil fuels, it, it just becomes, it just seems, uh, like there's going to be less public benefit if that's the case compared to a bunch of startups going in there and trying to really make a dent in the way mm-hmm. that energy is being sold and created right now. Sure. Um, I'm curious also when it comes to the generation for nuclear uh, I've heard you know one of the biggest things that people talk about if you talk about nuclear is like what do you do with the waste and you described already that the waste is not a huge threat but people are like isn't that bad over you know it's, a, it's you know you have to bury it deep in a mountain or something and that some new nuclear plants may be able to use the waste from previous plants is that accurate or do you have any facts about that?
1: Sure. So there, there's a, I, I can maybe address those in the order they received. So sure. the waste is a big deal. It is very nasty stuff. It's radioactive and you do not want it to get out into the environment. That's why it's stored first on site in a pool of water called the spent fuel pool, because it continues to produce a little bit of heat after you take it out of the reactor. Um, and by a little bit, I mean maybe a percent or less than a percent after a few days or so, but that's still a lot of energy. So you need to cool it somehow. After a few years, once it cools down enough, in a a radioactive sense, it's still producing a little bit of heat, but it has to be removed, and it's transferred to what's called dry cask storage in this country, where a couple of those fuel assemblies will be sealed up in a canister that's made of steel, surrounded by concrete, with vents drilled on the side to suck in cold air and passively cool them. And right now, they just sit out on big concrete pads outside these reactors. And they're perfectly safe doing what they're doing for their rated lifetime of 60 years or so, we should be putting it in one centralized place. Uh, you may have heard of Yucca Mountain as the chosen site that the US government picked to say, we're going to put all our waste here in what's called a repository. It was kind of shoved down Nevada's throat without so much of their consent. So what I've learned recently is there were three sites chosen. Two of the senators were more high ranking and said, not in my state. And the junior senator from Nevada was stuck with the, with the site. Now, eventually, he climbed up in the ranks and managed to stop that from happening. Um, but the government, they said that we will take care of these companies' waste. Uh, and the companies are stuck with the waste right now. So the government stopped holding the bill for a promise that they made. But we don't have the repository up and running it. In other countries, it works a little differently. You can have what's called the closed fuel cycle, where you take old spent nuclear fuel, chemically reprocess it, and pull out the unburned uranium and other fissile isotopes and reuse them in what's called the uh, MOX fuel or mixed oxide fuel. We don't do that in this country. There was a brief time when it was made illegal, actually, President Carter passed a law that said no reprocessing of fuel or well, no, it was a law or an executive order, but it was some something legal that said you can't do that. Reagan overturned it, but I say the damage was done by that point because you can't just say you can do it and start doing it. This is going to be another big, crazy facility that needs regulated, safety checked, monitored. It's, it's bigger than a private company alone. Government would Got have it. to be and you'd have to sell it to whoever lives there where you'd want to cite it and you can't just take their land and do that you know this is america you can't just do that Mm -hmm. you know we're i hope we're out of the days of eminent domain where you just wave a couple magic words and take people's land away i don't think america should work like that anymore
0: absolutely well and so have the you know developers of nuclear power plants have they taken this problem into account is that one of the reasons why i'm hearing that they may be able to use this uh spent fuel or repurpose the spent fuel
1: in newer plants it's it's one of the reasons it would be a much more economical use of the fuel we have so estimates of how much uranium we have left to use easily vary numbers i've seen are around a couple hundreds of years you know not not nothing but not forever But each reactor only burns about 5% of the useful uranium when you use that fuel up. And then 95% of what's left is discarded. So we could stretch that theoretically by a factor of 20, realistically less than that, but by a lot. If we could redissolve the fuel, concentrate the really nasty waste into a smaller volume, and then use the rest of the fresh fuel. But it requires very nasty chemical separation.
0: Got it. Got it. Interesting. So it seems to me, you know, just from the more I learned about nuclear, the more I like it. And it seems like one of those things that if, if we all knew as much about nuclear as maybe you did, people, the general public would be much more accepting of it and it would be one of our primary energy sources. Mm -hmm. Uh, so with that in mind, it seems like there is going to be competition to develop these sources, uh, or more nuclear usage, uh, for developed countries and developing countries. So is there, have you considered a reality where the United States does not uh, embrace these technologies as fast as maybe someone like China or India or one of these other countries and what kind of effect that could have on us?
1: Yes, I, I fear that we're watching that unfold before our eyes. The, the US has always been the world leader in safe nuclear power. And I'm afraid that we are passively ceding that title to russia and china and some other countries which are actively developing the problem is they don't have the best safety records now things could change they could improve it's like i'm not discounting any improvement in the future but i think this u.s has to stay the gold standard of safe nuclear power we know how to do it well we've started in the navy kept it up civilian we've been the biggest source of nuclear power in the world like we don't have the highest fraction but we had the highest amount, Um, China's going to eclipse us one day. I think they are building 26 plants and have plans for 60 odd more. Um, That's going to put them over us.
0: Where does the United States stand with development right now?
1: We're only building two. And these are the sort of two EP1000s. And it was going to be four and then two of those projects were canceled and we don't have any plans to build any more on public land. There are plans to build some test reactors, like the versatile test reactor at Idaho National Lab, which would actually be a Gen 4 reactor, a sodium cooled one. They're saying 2026, but um, I'm in the nuclear field, and I know not to believe a deadline until you've reached it. I'm hopeful, because I want to use that reactor in my experiments. So I'm pushing for it, but I'm also being optimistic. I'm sorry, I'm being realistic, Um, that who knows. But I am worried that the world may eclipse us. And to me, there's a danger in America not setting the standard because we tend to do things very safely. We have a great record of it. We have the best record of it in terms of kilowatt hours produced and things that have gone wrong. We have an amazing safety culture. We have a a questioning attitude where Anyone in the organization can question. Anyone as high up in the organization and they will be listened to. Um, this a devil's advocate is well in play. No one's ideas are shut down. We have a great network which shares, oh, this little incident happened. Here's how we patch it up. Everyone should know about it. Here are the lessons learned. We've got a really great system to share common information and keep everyone safe. So nobody makes a mistake more than once.
0: So we should lead uh, the way control
1: the rest of the world.
0: Yeah. So, but if we lead the way and, and have good policies, procedures, practices in place that other people could replicate, then mm-hmm. it'd be advantageous for everybody globally.
1: Sure. I'll, I'll give you a, a concrete example. Um, I sure. visited a nuclear power plant in Taiwan about uh, seven years ago and I asked them, oh, what about this and that? How do you license things? And they said, oh, we basically just copied your NRC rulebook. And I thought, that sounds pretty good. I think our rule book's pretty good and I'm glad to hear that you think so too. Of course, they've got their own twist to it. But if the gist of it was we want to be like America, that's great. I like that. Not because it's, you know, America first or whatever, but because we have a great safety record.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to, to make it more real for people, as far as like what kind of impact nuclear could have, what, what do you, you know, like I imagine the cost for electricity would, be much lower if, if, you know, nuclear was deployed more widely Mm -hmm. in the United States. Are there any other major benefits that would affect consumers directly that, you know,
1: could swipe public opinion? Well, yeah, I think the, the problem of climate change, which is pretty big, I won't say it's existential. A lot of people say, oh, we're going to cease to exist climate changes. I don't think so. But I think life is going to become very uncomfortable and difficult. That's the problem I want to tackle now. And I think a lot of people are worried about, what if I have an increased one in a thousand chance of cancer if something goes wrong nuclear? And I say, well, what about the 100% chance the climate's screwed? Which of those problems do you want to tackle first? I will gladly produce waste to tackle the problem that is at our doorstep. And then we've got time to deal with, do we, what do we do with the waste? Can we reprocess it? Can we bury it? Can we? blasted into space who knows there's problems with that approach but maybe we'll get better at rocket safety uh the point is no one knows what the future holds but we see where the data is going with the climate and in my lifetime mit is predicted to be underwater that's really scary so if we don't deep decarbonize now and we cannot get there with renewables alone then we are going to have a much less comfortable life and most of our happy civilizations which happen to be near the coast are going to have to move inland or look like Venice or change in some other way that I can't predict. So I'm of the opinion, tackle the biggest problem now. Absolutely. I don't know why we wouldn't throw everything we've got at it.
0: For sure. It makes total sense. You know, energy is, is a, it's like, so in our faces every day, it's kind of like your nose. It's like your eyes stop seeing your nose after a while. The same thing, like we forget how much of a luxury electricity and unlimited access to it really is in our modern world. Um, yeah, we
1: just switch, flip a switch and things work. wasn't yeah. like that 50 years ago. It may not be like that in 50 years. I'm kind of worried that we're at sort of peak comfort, and I hope we're not.
0: Peak comfort is an interesting way of looking at it, uh, just that term. You know, it's, it's almost like comfort is... Uh, it's damaging at a certain level if people are not in touch with those, uh, you know, those core, you know, the, the reality or the truth of what would it be like without these things. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm always interested in getting people to sort of explore that further, uh, sort yeah, of I have more gratitude for what we have.
1: I think we're seeing that in this anti vaxxer insanity. Like, not a lot of pe- not a lot of young people alive, have ever seen someone with polio or have ever met someone with measles. Um, I talked to my aunt, for example, who she grew up in, in, call it a city in Maine, if there are any, I mean, she grew up in Bangor, pretty far out there, and she knew folks with polio. And when you see someone get stricken with that, it is just like, oh God, I can't believe how awful that is. Why would anyone allow that to come back? Because they're too comfortable, because they're just like, ah, I don't feel it, you know, maybe, They think, oh, vaccines have mercury, government, whatever, whatever. I mean, they were developed to stop awful things like that. And it's now maybe too far from the public's memory. The other thing that hits home for me as a Jewish person is Holocaust denial. There aren't a lot of people alive now that witnessed the World War II atrocities, including the Jewish Holocaust. And now there's a whole group of people that are saying it never really existed. it's like, yeah. My, my generation is probably going to be the last one who as kids met people who survived the Holocaust. And I feel like we go in these cycles every 50 to 75 years where we forget why we did things and get too comfortable and then have to repeat the mistakes. I really wish we didn't.
0: I know it's, it's that, you know, it's the pendulum swing and it can neither be for the good or for the bad. And you yeah. know, what I've What I've noticed is with with nuclear, it seems like it swung bad for, you know, uh, a few decades there, 50 years almost, and now it's, you're sort of feeling it come back the other direction and there's a lot of excitement about the potential of nuclear, Uh, more so in this past year than I've ever seen in my entire life, which is Mm -hmm. reassuring. Um, Yeah. So being in your industry and in, in your, you know, in your shoes, I can imagine one of the biggest challenge is just getting enough people focused on it. What What is going on over there at MIT to get to, you know, make people interested in, in nuclear? Why should people be interested in, in pursuing nuclear for their career?
1: Sure. So I, I've noticed some trends in the way that people choose their majors since I started as an undergrad versus now. And now it's, you know, it's been 18 years. Like, oh man, it's been ha- literally, literally half my life I've been here. Um, I would say... This is a very average with no set pattern, for example. But I talk to more students who are choosing things because of short-term money, because now we've got this computer science boom where you can study coding, and you can work for Facebook or Google, and you could be making one to two hundred k a year with a bachelor's degree, um, and then that's that's all you need to know. Part of this comes from, I mean, let's say you're the first one in your family to go to college, or your family is in financial hardship. Of course, the first thing you're gonna be thinking about is stability, financial stability, supporting yourself and your family. Um, And so that's priority number one is what's the fastest path to stability? Um, Now I've seen a lot of people, I mean, my my friends and crew, included kind of burn out on that track where they went down that track because they liked coding because it was fast money. They don't like it anymore. And so there's a difference to me between a career and a passion. You can have a career that isn't a passion. You can have a passion that isn't a career. But while you're at school like this, I think it's important to find something that can be both. And there's a lot of misconceptions that there are very few careers out there if you go into nuclear, whereas we try to get the word out that we're the ultimate generalists and we have to be experts. So you can always fall back on the generality of a degree like nuclear engineering, like aero-astro, mechanical engineering, even material science and engineering. You learn a lot of the same concepts that make you marketable. All over the place so we do things like try and get a lot of students in our labs doing real research with a preference to freshmen and saying no experience required if if you want to work in the lab the answer is yes we're making a huge push for that right now we have a lot of recruiting events where we let people come and build small nuclear devices because lots of people think oh it's just power plants no you can build an electrostatic fuser that makes fusion neutrons and something about that big we're setting up a kit for that right now Wow. And you know, that would fit in your hand. And so just to flip the switch and change people's perception that nuclear can be hands on, experimental, it can be personal. Like at the first day of my class, I asked for my students toenail clippings, we throw them in the reactor, and we activate them with neutrons and we can tell them how much arsenic they have in their blood. Wow. From neutron activation analysis. So it's environmental sampling, it's medical procedures. Like it it's personal it feels like one of those far away, scary fields, but we're trying to make it personal, hands-on, exciting and approachable.
0: So, I mean, even in that short explanation there, I just learned more about what nuclear can be used for. And I've never really understood uh, how nuclear science could be sort of like the, you know, cover so many generalities. Could you go more in depth on that? Like what other fields of science are involved with nuclear that people will learn about?
1: So if there's one tagline I'd love the the listeners to hear is nuclear is more than electricity. We're not the department of nuclear power. We specifically focus on nuclear physics, nuclear science, and engineering. One of the applications is power. One of the applications is environmental sampling and remediation, not just of radioactivity, but some of the techniques that we use are really, really good at sensing super low levels of chemical contaminants or other molecules. Nuclears led the way in gigantic scale computing because we have problems that require it. Like, how do you simulate a full nuclear reactor down to the level of little fuel elements? Also drives advances in how do you pose a problem to a million core computer? That's a general computer science problem. Like, how do you use those things efficiently? How do you not waste CPU hours? Then you can start to look at... You know societal models climate models and other things and a lot of these advances were brought about because nuclear had a need so you could get into ultra high speed and efficiency computation you could get into plasma physics like why do the stars look the way they are and What is the universe made of is a fundamental question that we come upon quite a bit Um, we look at ways of using radiation for example to sniff out nuclear weapons and prove that something's a weapon without revealing its structure, which means other countries would let you count the number of weapons they have and verify that there aren't any more without giving away their design. And so we get heavily into the policy aspect too, because when you talk nuclear to politicians, things, things get a little sticky. So we pose some of the hardest problems for political science, where sometimes knowing too much information weakens your position at the bargaining table. So can you use physics to infer what you need without learning what you shouldn't know is a pretty cool question where science and policy collide. Wow. That's uh, quite a lot.
0: That's amazing.
1: Not to mention everyone that studies, let's say material science, like things tend to be made out of materials. Most of that studying is done with radiation. you ever used an electron microscope. That's an accelerator. And we study accelerator science so how do we accelerate particles get higher currents more uniform energies and study more aspects of matter because for example if you want to know uh, we do this fun thing where on parents weekend uh, all the parents of the students and some random parents from around campus come to take our class that's the day we look at electrons producing x-rays and so i asked the parents this year it just worked out i said Everyone that's got diamond jewelry, hand it up to the front of the class. I swear to God, I'll give it back in two hours. And I got like five honking diamonds this big from people that are just like, yeah, I trust you. So we took them over to the electron microscope, blasted them with electrons, and looked to see whether we got zirconium x-rays back. If we did, that'd be a cubic zirconia. We got only carbon x-rays back, and so we're able to tell them in about two seconds, you've got a real diamond. So art forgery detection, jewelry forgery detection, something that we do. Um, the the folks we I have a friend who's knows the chief scientist at the Louvre in Paris. And there's a lot of nuclear techniques used to check the chemicals and isotopes used in a certain painting because when you get materials out of the ground, they may have the slightest different isotopic mixture in one location on the world than the other, and you can use that to track if the paints that they use were from the right place at the right time. Art forgery detection.
0: Wow, is there Used for like archeological purposes?
1: Absolutely. So you can do what's called radiocarbon dating. If you want to know how old something is, you can look to see certain radioactive isotopes that are naturally incorporated in it. So things like the, do uh, you ever hear of the Shroud of Turin? Yes. The, uh, supposed burial cloth, the Jesus of Nazareth, that was debunked by radiation dating they looked at the amount of a certain isotope of carbon that's always produced in the upper atmosphere by space radiation. And they saw there was too much of it in that shroud for it to be 2000 years old. It had to be younger with, wow. with statistical certainty for older things like that. Like, you know how we know the age of the moon, we look at the ratio of potassium and argon trapped in the moon rocks because a lot of rocks have potassium, all potassium, has a little bit of a naturally radioactive isotope, something like 0.01% radioactive, it decays to argon gas and the argon gas gets stuck in the rocks. So you pulverize or heat up the rocks, see how much argon gets out. And it tells you it's aged within, you know, a few hundred million years.
0: That's absolutely amazing. It's, it's like examining the code of the simulation like yeah. use, using, using that universe, certain technology. Right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, but that's kind of how we, that's how we know how old the moon was. Cause when the moon was liquid, let's say after it smashed out of the earth or collided with the earth, it was hot for a while. Once it froze, that gas had nowhere to go. So that's when the clock started ticking.
0: Wow. That's, that is truly amazing stuff. I had no idea nuclear covered so many, uh, you know, different fields. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, so to us, anytime there's radiation or the energetic transport of matter or energy, because they're the same thing, so say with Einstein, uh, that's where we come in. It's.
0: it's I, I mean, you've piqued my interest in nuclear. Is there any place that someone can go or any resources? or I mean, obviously, they can go to MIT and learn from you, uh, but are there other are there books? Are there resources or, or other places that people can learn about this stuff?
1: Yeah. So what I'd like to, to plug for all our listeners is if you want our crash course and everything that nuclear is, we're offering a, a MOOC course, a massive online open course called nuclear energy, science systems and society. Can you see my screen? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, we're offering this on edX for the second time. It's eight weeks, it's 11 weeks. It's eight to 10 hours per week. Self-paced. All the lectures are on video. We've even got problem sets and things that'll be that'll be graded, forums for you to discuss. This is the place where you can go and get just a taste of everything nuclear. So you can do things like, do these radiocarbon dating calculations, design a plutonium source to be sent into space on a satellite, like we power deep space satellites, figure out what makes fission and fusion reactions work, understand a bit of nuclear policy, delve into quantum engineering, And if I get everything done in time uh, we'll also have a do it yourself Geiger counter course where you can explore radiation in your environment yourself. Wow. So if you want to send this off to any of your, uh, any of your listeners, join up. We had 3000 people last year and there's no class limit this year.
0: That's unbelievable. And even, you know, for me, one of the, you know, like this knowledge about college, you know, one of my sticking points for the current university system is just the price that it, it forces people to pay. And to see a course yep. like this available to anybody for yep. free is mind-boggling.
1: This costs nothing, so you can just you just do it, right? There's no barrier to entry. Like you just enroll by putting in your email, and you're in. If you want to go deeper, uh, are you familiar with MIT's Open Courseware system?
0: I've heard that you can take uh, MIT courses online, but I don't know much past that.
1: So it's OCW.mit.edu. We put as many of our courses as possible up online. I think we just hit 2 million subscribers on YouTube, which is like sick. Um, And so I teach the introduction to nuclear engineering and ionizing radiation. And we've had versions of this course up online where you can read stuff, but now we've actually recorded all the lectures on video. So you can attend every session of this MIT class. You can see the blackboards at the end of each day so you can follow along with your notes. You can do all the problem sets take all the exams, you can see all the solutions. You get everything that the MIT students get, except for the FaceTime and the chance to ask your own questions. But we believe that knowledge should be free. So we made it so.
0: I I truly love that. I think that's amazing. And uh, yeah, it's just, that's mind blowing, truly.
1: And so the course number is 22.01 for the listeners out there. Uh, After you take our Nuke MOOC, this uh, massive open online course, you've got the chops you need to handle my course, which is a sophomore level course at MIT.
0: And even for anyone listening, just to check it out and to dive deeper to find out if this would be something, you know, a potential career pathway, I always recommend, you know, learning about something before diving all the way into it. And this gives you that opportunity and that flexibility to learn with no money out of pocket to figure out if this is a a career or, you know, a trajectory you could see yourself on
1: yeah we the there was no point in us charging for any of this stuff because we just need smartest people in the world to make a contribution to this field uh making money is not the object of this we just want to spread knowledge and accumulate people who can help so well, you are all smart out there and we want to orient you towards this problem the world's energy crisis the why the universe formed the way it did Um, how to detect art forgeries, whatever it is, is nuclear science is both deep and broad. And you'll be ready for just about any career after you take these courses.
0: I I love it. And Michael, I I really appreciate both the work that you're doing in your own research and developing uh, in the nuclear field, as well as your, you know, uh, educational activism to get this out to more people, to share the experience, to try to attract more geniuses over to uh, to this industry. I, I truly appreciate all that effort because I think it is one of the biggest problems that are facing people today and can lead to some of the largest changes in our lifestyles and the way that we live in gen- like, It's just so massive what, what you're working on. So I truly appreciate that. I Thank don't want to take up too much more of your time because I know you've are you got to be busy over there. Um, before yeah, we wrap I'm trying up, to make good on the
1: promises <laughs> we made, right?
0: Yeah, I appreciate it uh, before we wrap up is there any like final asks or requests or words of advice or wisdom or anything You want to leave with the listeners?
1: Yeah, I'd say this this is another subject we talked about a lot today in class just because it's written doesn't make it true um, the best thing Everyone can do whether you're in nuclear or not is approach everything with a questioning attitude make sure that you can follow what people say with a self consistent set of logic So like I said, there's a lot of misinformation out there. It's become very easy to spread misinformation because it's crafted to be catchy, not correct. But I always recommend that people look for primary sources and a primary source isn't another blog or my friend said so, or Wikipedia, but they can help you find primary sources. So something that's peer reviewed, published, that's generally accepted knowledge, not just accepted by one person, and make your own decisions. Don't just take what people say for granted. You'll notice in our courses that you shouldn't just take what we say for granted. We provide a lot of links and references for you to do your own reading and discover from the original discoveries themselves, whether these facts are true or not. And I recommend you take that approach to everything you do with life, not just nuclear.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. I love that bit of advice there. Thank you again. Um, well, I truly appreciate it again, and uh, I look forward to blasting it out there. And I will always be an advocate for nuclear uh, as long as I know smart people like you are beyond, back there pushing and educating more people. Uh, hopefully, we can raise more awareness and and uh, you know give nuclear the the attention it deserves. So thank you.
1: Cool. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. Uh, hopefully, you know see some more nuclear developments come soon, and we can stay in touch.
1: Sounds good. Yeah. Call me back whenever you want. All
0: right, Michael, thank you very much. Have an excellent evening. You too.